Have you ever considered how many of your own prayers would destroy you if God actually answered them? I mean, think about it. As long as you have been living, as many times as you've seen your own foolishness come back to bite you, as many times as you've been shown your own motives are often very selfish, your own wisdom shown to be severely lacking and short-sighted, your own pride so blinding, and your own love so limited, do you ever think how much that taints your own prayer life? Or do you think that somehow, magically, you become a new person every time you get down on your knees to pray? I mean, how much do we trust ourselves? And how much do we trust what we pray for that we are really seeking what God wants instead of what we want? I mean, consider what we pray every week as we come to church and we make this confession of sin. And then ask yourself if you're really a safe guide uh, to what should be happening in the world and what God should be doing in your life. I mean, in our confession, we pray, and I'm paraphrasing, we have not been the people that we could have been this week. We have not done the things you told us to do. Sometimes because we didn't want to. Sometimes because it would have cost us more than we were willing to give. Sometimes because while we wanted to, we just didn't have the moral strength to pull it off. But we did things that we knew that we should not do. We spoke when we should have been silent. We took when we should have given. We did things that were less than noble, and we thought worse things than that. We didn't love our neighbors as ourselves. We let them down. We let you down, God. I mean, we even let ourselves down. And sometimes we didn't notice And when we did, sometimes we didn't even care. Amen. I mean, that's quite an admission every week. Do you mean it when you pray that prayer? As we gather week in and week out and get on our knees? I mean, I hope you do. I hope I do. I mean, our Sunday school series is about learning to own that reality that we just prayed for our own good and even for the good of everybody else around you. The truth is, probably our best prayer would be to pray against ourselves. I mean, Lord, help me not to get my way, please, would probably be better than most of the prayers that we offer. Well, we have a text this morning where God loves the people so much that he refuses to answer their prayers, at least in the way intended. And had he not, there would be salvation for none of us. And so let us see this morning in our text briefly The first, this announcing of a Savior. Two things in the Gospel of Mark signal to us that we what we should be seeing and expecting to see in this text. Christ, both his commandments and actions, as well as Mark's attention and repetition to the details. I mean, the text is a little bit strange in the way that it's given, only because Mark seems to say something and then say it again and then say it again ad nauseum as if we didn't catch it the first time. We get so used to reading the Bible in a casual way that we often miss these things, but this text really is dripping with details that should arrest the attention of a careful reader as well as direct where our attention need be. I mean, look at first the locations. I mean, all the locations in this text matter. We learn that Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. That is his destination. But his current location is the Mount of Olives. And then we learn that he's en route to Bethany and Bethphage, or he's in that locale. 
Well, why all of these, you know, city names? Why does Mark go out of his way to tell us all of these towns when he could have just told us that Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem? Well, in the Old Testament, there's prophecies concerning many of these locations and ones that should immediately bring to mind of the careful reader what this text means or what uh, all the import of this text is. So, for instance, the Mount of Olives in the Old Testament, according to the prophecies uh, of Zechariah in chapter 14, was the place where God would put His foot down on earth, splitting that mountain and ultimately leading His holy people into the city of Jerusalem. Part of the big promise to the Jewish people was that one day Yahweh Himself would come, along with His messianic king, and set everything to rights for His people. It says in the prophecy, On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. And it won't just be a victory for Yahweh, of course, It will be a victory for Yahweh's king, the Davidic son. And if a victory for the king, then a victory for the people. When God comes from the Mount of Olives, he's coming to rule at his holy temple. But then the Messianic king will rule from his throne in the holy city of Jerusalem. Both will be there stationed for the world to see. And all will be under their authority. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. We read that this morning. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. So notice what city is shouting. Jerusalem is supposed to be celebrating. Why? Because your king is coming to you, and his rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the rivers to the end of the earth. Locations matter. I mean, the good stuff concerning God's rule through his Messiah begins at Mount Zion and concludes in the most important city in the Israelite imagination, Jerusalem itself. And Mark mentions both of those locations here in this text. But of course, he mentions much more than that. You'll notice the timing. This event is happening the most important week of Israel's calendar, the week of Passover, a time fraught with both political and religious overtones. I mean, this was the time in Israel's past when God overthrew her oppressors and her masters in Egypt. And if God was going to redeem Israel again from all of her current enemies, what better time would there be to do this than Passover? Look at the actions. I mean, unless we think these are just coincidental, the actions that are commanded and taken remove all doubt of Jesus' intended message here in Mark chapter 11. There's this weird securing of the cult. Whatever this cult thing is about must be important because Mark mentions it no less than four times in a matter of a few verses. In fact, this cult takes up half of the story. There are more verses about just getting the cult for Jesus than takes up the writing of it, the celebration of the people, and the arrival in Jerusalem. And so why? Why does it take up all that attention? Because of the prophecy of Zechariah that we read this morning. That when the Davidic king does come... He's going to come riding on a donkey, and when he arrives on that donkey, what happens next? He rules from sea to sea. God arrives, his king arrives, and notice the outcome is the same. God, Yahweh, is the Lord over all the earth, and Yahweh's king is the Lord from sea to sea over all the earth. If you think this is an over-interpretation, Notice everyone present interprets 
it the same exact way. And so if that's the announcing of salvation, notice this praying for salvation. The actions of the disciples and the crowd show us what we are witnessing. You'll notice that all of a sudden, you know, everyone starts taking their clothes off, right? These cloaks just start coming off of everyone, some for the, for the top of the donkey, some to be strewn along his way. Everyone is making this pathway and this resting place for Jesus as he sits on the donkey. I mean, these are things that we don't see because they're not part of our way of doing things. But it's an appropriate action when someone's being anointed and inaugurated and announced as king. I mean, it has biblical precedent. For instance, when King Jehu is ascending to the throne, we learn this from the Bible. Thus says the Lord to Jehu, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man among them took off his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. I mean, this is further proven in the waving of palms. So notice, you know, they're, they're acknowledging or admitting the royal status of Jesus, and then they start waving these palms, which again is something that has taken place in Israel's history during the, his history during the Maccabean Revolt. That when uh, <clears throat> um, uh, Simeon was being led back into the city, uh, the people took up I'm sorry, when Simon was being led back into the city after he defeated their enemies, the Seleucids, we read, Simon led his soldiers into the fortress and they carried palm branches and praised God with all kinds of songs and musical instruments, saying, God has completely crushed our powerful enemy. So when your leader is victorious, when you know he is mighty in battle, when you want to throw a parade to celebrate him in this way, You surround the streets and you wave palm branches. But what is most telling is their prayer. What is the crowd shouting during this strange procession into Jerusalem as they're waving palms? Notice, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They know exactly what's happening. And they're acknowledging what's happening. They're saying of this Jesus that this is the coming of the Davidic kingdom. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what the prophecies have told us about. And the timing of it is present. All of their actions show they're acknowledging nothing less that Jesus must be the Messiah that has been announced and foretold for so many years. I mean, you'll notice this refrain of theirs is something we sing every week at the Lord's table. When we sing the Sanctus, you'll notice the addition to the the angelic song, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the song that the very angels in heaven sing, we join them in. But tacked on to that song in the Sanctus that we sing is this refrain, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's evocative prayer, this Hosanna dripping with Old Testament expectation, a prayer where they are crying out, save us to God. God, save your people. Now mind you, as they line the streets, they're not coming forward for the kind of salvation that you would maybe seek at an altar call. They're not hoping that God comes and shines up 
their, 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 their dirty soul. I mean, they want to be saved, saved. <laughs> they want to be saved from the Romans. And they want to be saved from Herod and his false kingdom. They want to be saved from oppressive taxation, and they want to be saved from a, a dominant government that is ultimately keeping them hemmed in from what God has promised concerning their own rule and freedom in the world. They want their king to be magnified above Caesar. And they want it to be a true son of David, not a Herodian half-breed who's taken on a throne that is not his own. They want this government off their neck. Help us, God, they pray. And of course, this isn't just a random cry for help. It's a cry that matches everything else in the story. They're taking upon themselves Psalm 118, saying, this is the moment, this is the day that God has made. Save us now. Jesus has been preaching the kingdom of God all throughout the Gospel of Mark. Over and over, He's told them, the kingdom of God has come to you now that I am here. And it's been hard. They've struggled with believing that that's true. And whenever anyone figured it out till this moment in Mark, Jesus would silence them saying, now is not the time. He silenced demons. He silenced those who were healed. He told them to tell no one concerning His Messiahship. It wasn't time for it to be revealed publicly. But notice, He does not silence them here. In fact, in the other Gospels, He says very plainly, look, if you didn't cry out right now, the very stones would cry out. This is the moment of my revelation. I am the Davidic Messiah that has come to rule on earth from sea to sea. I mean, these people have done the math and gotten to the answer as this king rides on in majesty. Notice how blessed is the one who comes on Yahweh's behalf, they cry. How blessed is the one who's bringing the long-awaited kingdom of David, our great father. They get it. I mean, Yahweh's warrior king is here. God said he would come. He said he would come to the Mount of Olives. He said he would march into Jerusalem and rule. He said he would come from the, uh, from the west and enter, moving east through that eastern gate to approach the city and once again reign for everyone to see. They've named it correctly. This is that day, the day that the Lord has made. And they are rejoicing. And they're glad in it. But you'll notice God's answering a better prayer here. In our final scene, it begins, as any good Bible student would expect, it begins even in the way that the people watching would expect. Notice, and he entered Jerusalem. That's good. That's what's supposed to happen. And he enters the temple. That's good. We'd expect that as well. He goes right to God's holy place. It's all here. A Davidic ruler, the capital city, the holy temple, every promise of the Old Testament is here. And what does he do when he enters the temple? Mark says, well, he just does nothing. It says, when he had looked around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I mean, with all the buildup and all the expectation of Mark's narrative, and for the crowd concerning all these Old Testament prophecies, we would have expected a whole lot more action than this. I mean, if this is the day of his coronation and arrival, 
were expecting a whole lot more than him simply, simply walking into the temple, looking around, and then heading back home. As he's coming from Mount Olives on his donkey with palms waving and acclamations of his kingship, according to all the prophecies, this scene ends in the thwarting of all of his enemies, the banishing of all usurpers, and the removal of all that defiles the holy city. But instead we get a simple gaze and Jesus heads over to Bethany. And notice Mark's reason is, it was already late. Almost like, well, he ran out of time. It was all going so well, he just hadn't checked his clock and didn't time it all that well. Maybe we'll start up again tomorrow. Perhaps the most notable thing about Mark's version of the story is how anticlimactic it is. I mean, all the excitement of the parade and the crowds chanting and the road strewn with coats and branches, it all leads up to nothing. Jesus looks around and returns. So how do you account for it? Because the crazy thing is, in reality, that action by Jesus ends up sealing his fate. In the other Gospels, he cleanses the temple, and we learn right away that the leadership wants nothing to do with him at that point and says, this guy's got to, to die. But even for the crowd, this is so disappointing concerning what their prayers had been. Even they won't stand for a Messiah like this, all bark and no bite. It's just not what they were looking for. But on this Palm Sunday, we have to see that it was precisely his inaction that saves. Had he answered their prayer in the way that they had prayed it, what a dreadful night it would have been. I mean, yes, for the Romans. Eventually, he would have got to dealing with them. But not before God dealt with the Jews. Not before the judgment that begins at the house of God was thrown down upon them and the whole city was scattered with none surviving. Mark is subtle with it. Notice Jesus looked around in your English translation at everything. So what he's saying is Jesus took it all in. He saw everything that was going on there in his father's house. And the all that he saw, we learn, was ugly. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the very next story is that strange story where Jesus curses a tree. You know, uh, you know uh, atheists and agnostics love this story. You know, Jesus is picking on poor trees for no reason. But notice, he curses the fig tree for its lack of fruit. And the very next story after that is he cleanses the very temple that he just went in and took in uh, uh, all of it into his purview. So he leaves the temple, and the next day he curses the fig tree, and then he cleanses the temple and casts everyone out. It's an interesting note that Mark mentions for, seems like, no reason, because Jesus ends up staying in Bethany, but he mentions Bethphage. But it doesn't play any part in the story, or, or so we think. But that name for that city means, literally, unripe figs. Figs that haven't ripened yet. And Jesus sees a fig tree that hasn't borne fruit and he curses it. And then he goes to the temple and what does he see? Unripe figs. A people who will not bear fruit no matter how many times God has given them opportunity. 
That town's name, House of the Unripe Figs, really is the name of the temple. It is a people who will not bear the fruit that they were called to bear. And Jesus says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. The city and the temple in totality is a house of bad fruit. Israel, God's people. Jerusalem, God's holy city. The temple, God's holy dwelling place. All corrupt from top to bottom. And if God is going to come and cleanse all those places like the prophecies say, when he says he's going to banish all the unrighteous things in Israel so that his temple is holy and his people are cleansed, if Yahweh's Messiah comes wielding a sword, he would have to strike his own people first, every one of them to a man. And if God was to answer their prayers in the way that they prayed them, they would have been praying for their own death and destruction. But I mean, isn't that the case for us? That if God gave us what we wanted, it would destroy us. I mean, how often our prayers are, God, come deal with all these unrighteous, hateful people. Destroy them in their pride. Destroy them in their rebellion against you. Do you think you would survive that prayer if God answered it? I mean, really? With the confession you just made this morning? If God's going to come and deal with the unrighteous, you don't think you're going to be on that list? When we boil it down, Jesus had to die in order to forgive our deepest wants. A lot of times we think, well, he died for our sins. Well, that's true, but he died for the things you loved so much that you looked at God and said, I'll take those over you. I want them so deeply. I'll rail bell against you to have them. And that's what Adam did in the garden, and it's what you do in your pride every time you sin. You say, I love this and myself more than I love you. He hung there because we wanted all sorts of things more than we wanted the God of Scripture. So God doesn't answer our prayers according to our wants, but instead He sends us what we need so that we are not destroyed. He graciously reigns on our parade (laughs) so that we can be saved. Robert Capon was right that we don't want a Savior who does stupid things like rising from the dead. We would prefer a Savior who just never died at all. And those are the kind of leaders we want, right? The strong and the successful. And this gospel message is replete with things that make no sense to the human mind. They are beyond our apprehension. As Richard Rohr wrote, how do you make attractive that which is not? How do you sell non-success? How do you talk about dissent when everything in our hearts is about ascent? And Christ the Messiah comes to die for a people who are so sinful that when they see the cross, they have absolutely no taste for it. Because it spits in the face of all the things that they really desire. A strong king who will ultimately prop up the kingdom that they've wanted in their deepest desires. You see, the contrast between Palm Sunday's crowd's expectation as well as our own with the Messiah that they received is pretty striking. I mean, we want a Savior to help us avoid pain. 
But we get a suffering and dying Messiah who promises life on the other side of pain, which is going to be a shock to this nation, and it's a shock to us as well. Every time God gives us a turn of events in our lives that doesn't feel like salvation and doesn't feel like the love of God, and yet God and His wisdom saved us in a way that we would have never accepted. Even His own disciples Think of Peter. When he tells them he's going to the cross, he says, Not so, Lord. And that was us, and that is us. You see, Holy Week isn't all that attractive if we're honest. We're going to come and celebrate Good Friday, and it's come to be beautiful to us, but there's nothing attractive about the cross. We want Jesus and all his power to come and help us fulfill our glory wishes, and yet it's his inaction and his ultimate humiliation that saves us graciously from ourselves. And if our desire is salvation, we need to receive it as it comes. You see, He hasn't come to baptize our plans. but He's come to save us from ourselves. (laughs) And that irony is bittersweet. Save us, we pray, they cry. And so do we. And save us, He will, without our help, And despite our best effort to stand in the way. So that he can give us the wants that we never had. The true things that we never knew we were missing. in the salvation that's offered to us in Christ. May that be our hope and prayer. Even this holy week and this Easter season. Let us pray.